The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. 1 John 5, 1-5 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the true love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mamie. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes in our hearts um, for your work. Holy Spirit, would you convict us of our fear, our unbelief? Father, would you convict us of trying to manage our Christian lives and not live by faith or minimizing your designs and your intentions for us individually and for the church, for having a skepticism that you're really going to take care of us, that the gospel is really powerful enough to make changes in me, to live the kind of life that you've called me to live. Father, we the church have drifted a long way away from the harbor of your design, and we need an outpouring of your spirit. We need a blowing of the wind of God to change our minds, to help us to see new things and to have new thoughts that are more in line with what you would have us think about church, about our lives, about our resources, about our relationships. So, oh God, would you overwhelm us this morning with a clear picture of what you have called us to and the plan that is your plan to change the world through a body that is radical because of who is there, loving you and loving one another. Oh God, would you come? Holy Spirit, I need you desperately. So would you come and do your work? Would you speak to us? Oh, Father, may I not get in the way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What John has been doing is building a clear case for this final argument. He has been laying the foundation for us to clearly understand what it is we are called to as God's people inside the church. When he was speaking of walking in the light in the earlier chapters, when he was pleading with them in chapter 1 that he wanted them to, to experience the fellowship of the body, when he was talking about um, 
loving one's brother. And if you hate your brother, then there's no way that you're a child of God. When he was laying all of this down, that if you think you're without sin, then you lie and the truth is not in you. As he was presenting Jesus as the Christ, the only Son of God and the only Savior of the world, as he was doing this, he was doing it for the purpose that we might be united in one faith, the faith of the gospel. I'm a sinner, my only hope is Jesus as my Savior, that we might humbly move together as brothers and sisters with God our Father. Because what God is doing in the world is He is creating a family. He's creating a family in which He's the Father and we brothers and sisters, His very sons and daughters. And that is how He is to change the world. He will change the world through a community that is united around Jesus, walking by faith and in the humility of the gospel, loving one another and loving neighbor as self, even as God loves us. And dear friends, we have not done that. 3,000 churches in Memphis, and we are the poorest city in the country? How in the world can we think that we are even a step close to what God has called us to do and be? And so this morning we need to listen with the utmost attention to get a, a better vision, a greater vision of what Jesus wants to do with us and what he can do in us. And the first thing that we need to see is that real change is going to begin when downtown church sees herself as the family of God. Listen to verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is going to heaven. Hallelujah. No. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Do you hear the family terms? We are never born unto an island of self. We are always born into, aren't we? Born into a family. That's what we come into. We are born of God who is our Father. And, and as we see Him as Father, we see our neighbors as our brothers and sisters. Jesus, the firstborn among many what? Brothers. We are brothers of Christ even. That's how intent God is of this whole concept of family. Indeed, we know nothing about family outside of God. He even brings in the whole reality of adoption as sons and daughters. Why? Because as John shows us in his gospel, even alludes to it and, and, and lays it out in this epistle, if you're not born of God, who is your father, God your father, then the devil is your father. They're two families. You're a child of the father or you're a child of the devil. And the child of the devil is there to use and abuse you. The child of the father is there to give you life and joy and peace and create a community of support and encouragement. I love the intentionality of adoption. My wife and I went to a court recently with some good friends, a young couple that we know. They have two children, but they started fostering two other children. They have two sons, and they were fostering a boy and a girl. 
And they wanted to bring them into their family. They wanted to adopt and therefore double their children. And so they went through all the process and they went to court to do that. And so we went to court with them and we watched the judge sign the papers to make them legal parents to these children now. They are there. They even changed their last name to the parent's name. And yet, as we stood there and we watched, we were not rejoicing over some legality. You see, we know the story of these children. We know the the history of these children. We know the neglect of these children. We know even of the abuse of these children. And so our joy was not that a legal document was being signed. We were rejoicing that the future of two little children was being radically changed. The trajectory was being radically changed. They were going from an abusive situation to a loving, caring, merciful, God-fearing family. And, and we know that over a lifespan of these parents pouring in love and discipline and care and resources into the lives of these children, that the end result would be radically different from what they would have experienced. And dear friends, that is salvation. When you were born of God, you you can't just check that off. Oh good, I got that taken care of, now I'm going to go live my life. No, you were born into a family, you were born into something, and you come in line with this thing that we call family. You begin to care about those around you. See the intentionality, I want you to know this morning... That God intentionally chose you to be his son and daughter if you are his son and daughter. That's what I love about the whole language of adoption. A man and a woman can hook up and have a child. They don't even have to know each other. But adoption is utterly intentional. Adoption is utterly strategic and and. and And thought through, your salvation is utterly intentional. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that you are a child of the Father, chosen and paid for through the atoning work of another, the very Son of God? Do you understand the value that is on your life because Jesus died for you? Do you understand the value of the Father's love upon you? That there is nothing you can do to drive His love away. That's what Paul, that's his point in Romans 8. We cannot push away the love of God because His love is an ocean that will overwhelm us when we see it and know it. It's His love that changes us. And yet we live as orphans. I want us to look at this. And I want you to spend a few seconds... Seeing where you are in your heart, what you're believing, even this morning, as we think about being an orphan, living as an orphan, having the mindset of an orphan, or having the mindset of a child of the living God. Would you just kind of look at this? Peg yourself. I'll give you some time. Now, what's the point of this? 
the point of this, something, a real struggle in my life is I feel very alone much of the time. And one early morning a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, I started dealing with that yet again for the millionth time. I realized that I was feeling like an orphan. I was feeling like, you know, I'm not really loved. I'm all alone. It's all up to me. I, if it's going to happen, i got to make it happen, that kind of thing. And so I began to list the promises of God. I began to pray through um, Ephesians 1. In love, Richard Reeves, he predestined Richard Reeves to be adopted as his son. He chose you, Richard Reeves. He chose you to be his own. And, and see, do you understand that if you are sensing a, 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 a real, if you're not sensing the love of God, if you're not sensing his salvation as a reality in your life, then you're not loving those around you because we were all made for love. And if we're not drinking in the love that we were created for, namely the love of God, then we are trying to suck it out of something that will never love us. We're trying to, to live to get that love. We're like a pump that you put in water and it's just sucking that water and spewing it out. That's what we are in the world. We're looking to our work. We're looking to our hobbies. We're looking to our body image. We're looking to our friends. We're looking to our spouse. We're looking to our church. We're looking to our boss. We're looking to our employees. We're looking to people around us to make us feel loved and justified and accomplished. And the reason that we need to drink in the love of God is not so that we can say, ah, and just rest there. But we need to take in the love of God so that then we can begin to pour out that love and realize the very purpose for which we've been made. That's why we've been redeemed to love. Not redeemed to sit in a closet and hoard it to ourselves and say, thank you, Jesus, that I'm not like all these other people. But we receive God's love and therefore we stop working for it and looking for it in other things so that now we can love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So that we can live on mission. That's how we say it today. So that we can give ourselves away self-sacrificially. So that we can serve and not use service to make us feel loved, but serve because we are loved in Christ. You see, that is God's plan for the church. There is no, and, and, and this crosses all barriers in culture and race and personality and socioeconomic. This is what God is doing in the world. He's uniting a people unto himself that are united through the reality that we are sinners saved by grace. And therefore, when that becomes our identity, that I'm a sinner saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am a son of the King who loves me, who's declared me righteous, it is settled forever, nothing's going to change that, then all of a sudden I can look at whoever is in my community as my brother and sister in Christ because we share a common profession. So in that, there is no white church, black church. 
There is no conservative. There is no under-resourced resource. There is no hipster tradition. There's none of those categories. We are one family in Christ. And dear friends, we've got to begin, yes, we've got to begin living as that. And the only thing that holds us back from that is we don't really believe and live out of this gospel. We don't believe it. Something else really defines us. Oh yeah, Richard, I hear you. You say that, but come on. And God says... You see, this is how justice and mercy ministry is to, is to work. Justice is not to be a, a non-profit. Mercy ministry is not to be a non-profit. Now, thank God that we have non-profits because the church isn't doing and being what we've called or called to be and do. But here's the reality. A good parent never lets their children starve. A good parent never lets their children go naked. A good parent never lets their children skip out of school. A good parent stands for their children if they're being mistreated. And that's justice. And that's mercy. You see, when we come at it from the, the world's angle, angle, we stand for justice out of anger. But when we stand as redeemed children of God, we stand humbly, saying, that's my brother, that's my sister. I stand with them. I lay my life down for them. I spent most of yesterday with a friend of mine who at the end of the day told me that he was in a car recently that was shot up. It was filled with bullets, over a hundred bullets, and the driver was killed. His friend was killed, and he was not hit. you imagine how, what that does to your brain? I mean, do you imagine living with the trauma of that? And so I'm walking with him because he's my friend. We see this in this body. We're getting taste of this as we walk with one another through valleys. It's not just when we get caught up in 201 Poplar, but it's also, as I was stating earlier, when, when a couple has a child or when an individual has a child, when we have a single mom or, or a single dad. You know, when we, ha- we move toward brokenness out of concern and love. We move toward need. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Taking a meal to someone is great, but if that's all we're doing, we're not being a family. I need more than food if my dad, if, when my dad dies. Do you see it? I need somebody ask me, Richard, how are you, how's your grief, man? I need somebody coming alongside of me and say, you're not alone. That's where we are as a family. So are we being a family? 
Secondly, change happens when out of love for and obedience to our Father, we begin to really love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Out of obedience to our Father. After the adoption in that courtroom, we went outside and there was a lawn. And the the parents, you know, all the family were all out there and the biological sons and the new adopted uh, son and daughter um, were all, all running around out in the front yard playing together. And as I looked at that, I thought, how is this family, how, how are these, you know, separate lives coming together as a family? And I thought, you can draw a direct line to their parents. They are loving each other because of the parents. Because the parent, I mean, the, the, the two biological children, that they didn't adopt these, this brother and sister. They're just there. Why are they loving them? Why are they accepting them? Because their parents said, this is what you're going to do. And that's how a family works. We have a father, a mother, that together runs the household Telling the children and informing the children of what is true and the direction that we're going. And when we step outside of those laws, when we step outside of that structure, we are disciplined back in. We are corrected back in. We are brought back in. John says this. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments. What? We know we're loving each other when we love God and obey His command. What is He? I just don't understand what you're saying. If we love the Father, this is what He's saying, we will love our brothers and sisters because that's what our Father wants. Do you know what I want for Father's Day next week? I want my three daughters and their husbands. And their children loving each other. Do you know what will break my heart if my children despise each other? If my children refuse to love each other? Isn't that how we, we act like we don't get what is going on here, but we get it completely. I mean, what's going to break the heart of a father but the rebellion of a child? We all know it to be true. Dear friends, when the church separates according to interest groups and race and socioeconomic, I think this is what God wants to do. Did you see that parent? Let's see that picture. These two siblings were fighting, and this is what a parent did. Got an oversized, uh, got an oversized t-shirt and made them get, and look, they're loving each other, aren't they? That's what it's been like to plant downtown church, I feel like, in so many ways. I mean, basically what we're doing is we're, we're bringing different people in and everybody kind of comes in, you're sitting on the outside, and what we're trying to do is put you in the same t-shirt until you start laughing and giggling and rolling on the floor. Until you see, we're just human beings. (laughs) Equally sinful, equally needy, equally possessing the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and the hope of eternity. D.A. Carson put it like this. He said, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's true. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural uh, collocation, but because they've been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. Amen. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Dear friends, the person sitting next to you this morning is who Jesus wants you to love as you love your own family. The people in this room, the people sitting around you, this is who Jesus wants you to love. This is who the Father wants us to love. Those that he brings into this church, those that he places you around in this world, he says, this is who you are to love with the kind of love that I have. I hope and pray that we will keep pushing for that at downtown church. Because that is what is the hope of the world. It's not individual isolated Christians. It's us together loving one another and laying our lives down for each other. Well, guess what? Family's tough. So point number three. Change will happen when we love and fight for what the Father loves. Have you ever had to confess to your father and mother some wrongdoing? Oh, that just brings up all kinds of anxiety in me. I mean, you're fearing the discipline. You're fearing the, you know, whatever it's going to be. But what you're really fearing is disappointing them. You're disappointing your parents. That when your mother says, this is going to kill your father. And when your father says, this is going to kill your mother. You're like, oh. And your sin, your rebellion, it seemed so logical when you were sitting there taking the test. And oh, okay, I'll cheat on one. I mean, you know. But man, in the light of the presence of your father or mother, oh, there's no logic whatsoever. There's no rationale. I'm an idiot. What was I thinking? When you were driving 100 miles an hour, oh, it just felt so free. This is freedom. This is glory. And then the blue lights, and then you got to go tell mom or dad. Oh, man. Why do I say this? Because all sin is relational. And the lie being cast around, there's a lie in every generation, and this lie has been going on really since the fall, but here's the lie today. Do what makes you happy as long as what doing, as long as doing what makes you happy doesn't hurt anyone else. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Just do what makes you happy as long as you're not hurting anybody else. 
Well, let me counter it with a Christian view on that. You owe a lifetime of love to the father and his son. So do what he wants because you don't want to hurt him. Do you understand that if you try to live life apart from the the reality of a loving heavenly father who chose before the foundation of the earth to send his son to live under the law and obey it at every point so as to satisfy his righteous requirements of his law, knowing that you would never perform in such a way or obey to such an extent that would ever earn his forgiveness and earn his love, that you had a father before the creation of time that looked at your horrible self and said, I'm sending my own son to do that, and then I'm going to send him to a cross and make him sin, and then pour out all of my wrath, the wrath of hell itself upon his head, and then I'm going to send my spirit to give you the gift of faith to believe that this was all for you, which it was. You are saved into a family, and you have a father. And so there is no living. What household functions by this strategy of do whatever you feel like is good in the moment as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else? No family works like that. You do what's good for the father, you do what's good for the family. You never do what's good for you. Right? Because, I mean, that doesn't work. That's not family. That's individualism. Ephesians 4.30 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Parents, have you ever had your children disobey you? Yes. In that moment, in that moment, okay, maybe this isn't a fair question. I was about to say, in that moment, do you want to disown them? Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do want to disown them. But in, in a better moment, it doesn't change your love for them. It just hurts your soul. Because you see where they're going. You see that if they, if they keep choosing a lifestyle, if they keep choosing a life, that is lived for their desires and is lived according to their small intellect in the moment, that it's going to be a miserable future. And that's what, this is the God that created us and made us. So when we sin, He already loves us. He's already sent His Son to live and die and rise for us. He's already adopted us into His family, but it grieves His heart because we are in relationship with the Father. Brian Chappell said this, the emeritus, uh, president emeritus of Covenant Seminary. He said, the same spirit who convicts my heart of sin generates in me love for God. Gives me new birth, provides my apprehension of the beauty of grace in the world, and seals my redemption until the coming of my Lord. This same spirit who gives us all that assurance of our salvation, who loves me so intimately and perfectly, I can cause to grieve. So dear friends, what do we do as brothers and sisters 
when our brother and sister is grieving the father. We don't tell them, oh, whatever makes you happy. No. We tell them, come back. Come back to obedience. Because that is best. Note, John doesn't say, we don't know that we love the children of God when we put their will and desires before God's will and desire for them. In other words, we don't know we love others when we are so nice as to allow them to live any way they want to live, and that's how we live in the church. Oh, I can't tell him that he's out of line. It's not my place to judge. Isn't that what we say? Guess what, church? What God is saying is, it is your place to judge. It is your place to judge whether your brother or sister is walking in the light of God's love. But not to condemn them, but to fight for them. Isn't that what a good brother and sister does? We fight for one another. We don't fight against each other. We fight for each other's lives. That's what Christian community is. It is honest community. We do not have near enough confrontation, biblical, gospel-driven confrontation in the church anymore. Because we are not family. Is family ever afraid to fight? Rarely. You just lay it out there. Because you're at home. We are not going to be family until we start fighting like we're family. Until we start fighting out of love for each other. And still we, until we start caring enough for each other to confront sin in each other's lives, that's when we know we're a family. If you are coming to me, I can always tell a complainer from a loving brother and sister. The loving brother and the complainer comes and wants me to measure up. The, the, the loving brother and sister comes in humility, comes in brokenness, almost comes in fear and says, Richard, I, I feel like I need to say this. And believe me, I know I'm a sinner, and I, but I feel like I need to share this. I will listen to that all day long. But I'm not the only one that needs to be confronted. <laughs> and I'm not. I didn't plan to even say that. Believe me, y'all don't confront me probably near as much as you should. But I've been confronted, no doubt. But how do we do it? If we are to be an honest community that is holding the commandments of God above what makes me happy, what my will and desire is, how do we confront each other? Here's what Christian love is. Number one, we're not fighting against but for each other. We are fighting for one another. And so we don't come to each other and say, measure up or get out. We come to each other, we get closer. What do you do when someone's sick? If somebody fell out right here, I hope that, you know, if Mario falls out right here, I hope that this whole section doesn't move to that side. If Mario falls out, I hope that everybody comes in. See, that's what we do. We get close, we get tight, we get in each other's business. <laughs> we get intimate. We don't move away. That's called a lack of love. And that's what we've done in Memphis, by the way. 
That's not my problem. That's their problem. Brother and sister, our problems are each other's problems. And this city is not going to change until we start owning the problems, not running from them. We're fighting for, we're fighting out of love. We're fighting because Jesus died for me, because he saw my sin and he moved close. He moved tight and he didn't just confront me with his law, but he gave his life for me. And that's family. So we're fighting for, not against. Secondly, we're fighting from a place of humility. We never confront each other as men and women who have graduated from the need for grace. And that's what's so hard, and I think that's what many of us feel, especially white people. We're nice. We're way too nice. Southerners, we're too nice. The Niceness is not in the Bible. Love is in the Bible. And love is fierce. It is fierce. And we're fighting from a place of humility. A lot of times we think, well, man, who am I to, to tell them how to live? Because look at my life. That, that doesn't disqualify you. If disqualifying you, uh, if the grounds of disqualifying you for confrontation is that you have sin in your life, then nobody's going to confront. It's having sin in your life and knowing you have sin in your life. And anybody can feel and know if somebody's coming out of humility and brokenness or out of condemnation. We're fighting from a place of humility. Thirdly, we fight as those whose sin is equal, not greater nor less than the sin being addressed. Friends, in every age, in every culture, in every church, in every clique, in every community, We are constantly raising the sins of some above our own sin. And it's a gospel issue because we're doing it to make ourselves feel better about us. We're doing that a lot with sexual sin in our day. As as far as um, our culture runs into sexual freedom... We begin to say, oh, look at it, it's rampant, so we've got to you know, start separating ourselves. No, we've got to start moving toward. The problem with moving away, whenever there's something in you that wants to take a step back, it's because you've justified in your mind that what you are smelling is worse than what you're smelling on yourself. You don't smell your same smell. <laughs> but when you smell somebody as... Worse than your smell, you're going to take a step back. And the Bible says this to you, all smell. There is no one who smells good. No, not one. That's it. And if you don't smell it, it's because you're holding your nose. We must go, not exalting one sin over another. You see, God hates sexual sin, but he also hates pride and self-righteousness. Proverbs 6, 
There are six six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes. Really? Haughty eyes? Well, I'm done already. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Wow. One who gossips. One who's not a point of unity, but one who gossips. And then fourthly, and I didn't give Matthew this one, but we've got to fight boldly. We all know that there are times in our family fights when our brother or our sister tells us what we can do with ourselves and they leave the house. And you know what God says? Let them go. There's sometimes that we as a church have to even after we have exhausted every act of love, after we have gone with love and concern and care and in humility, the brother and sister says what we can do. And the Bible says that it's at that point that we've got to turn them over to the evil one in hopes, in hopes that it will bring them to repentance. We see the father of the prodigal son doing just that. His son came and said, I want half of your inheritance, and the father gave it and sent him out. And it was the greatest act of love ever. It was go taste your sin, go live your life. And the, and the father's not at home just stewing in anger. Oh, I hate that son. He has so embarrassed me in public. He has shamed the... No. That father is waiting for that son. That father is waiting for that son to hit rock bottom that he might come home. Because when he sees his son coming home, he does what no Hebrew father is ever supposed to do in public. He lifts his gown up, exposes his bare legs, and he runs to his son. And he throws his arms around him. And the, and the, the scriptures say he kisses him much. Spurgeon preached a whole sermon on those words. Kisses him much. And it will convert you if you're not converted. Because that's our God. That's our God. You know why He's not intervening in your life, but He's letting you run in sin because He's waiting for you just to hit rock bottom that you might turn your face toward home and He's going to lift His gown and He's going to come running. And dear friends, we the church must be the same kind of community. And I love the last words. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus said in John 16:33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You know why we can fight as a family? Because we can fight knowing the outcome. 
We might separate a little bit in this life. We might distance. There might be some rough patches for us in the church. But Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose from the ground, and he's coming back one day to make all things new. And so we can be the family of God, confronting each other in sin, calling each other to repentance, rejoicing as in our repentance with one another, growing deeper in our relationships, experiencing the intimacy of a family that, that, that fights and reconciles and exalts Jesus higher because we know the outcome. Jesus lived, Jesus died. Jesus rose and he overcame the world. He overcame every argument we're going to have. He overcame every sin that we struggle with. He wins. And so, dear friends, may we start fighting well. (laughs) May we start being a family. And may we do so with our arms wide open to the world saying, come join us. Isn't this what you want? Isn't this what you need? May it be so at downtown church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we beg you to make real what was preached this morning. Father, I pray in my life that I would have a change of heart and mind, that I would see those around me, even in this place this morning, as my blood relatives, that I would take ownership of my brothers and sisters, That my home, that my resources, that everything I have, my time would be wide open. That there would be no self-protection. And God, I pray that you would give me boldness beyond niceness. To love in such a way that confronts but embraces stronger. That doesn't condemn but loves with truth and grace. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need you and we need the power of the gospel to this end. May it be so for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.